Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Last Sunday, I made a shocking declaration. A few statements that I'll recap this morning. And uh, those statements were shocking to some, curious and liberating to others. First, I said last week that there are two creation accounts at the outset of the book of Genesis, not one. And these two accounts are from different traditions within Judaism. And rather than choosing one over the other, the Hebrew community of scribes and scholars allowed them both to stand. And then second, the two creation accounts tell the same story, but in different ways. And so we have contradictory elements. And we return to this slide that I gave you last week. Genesis 1 opens with a chaotic scene of water. Genesis 2, Genesis 2 beginning at verse 4, opens with the earth already existing, but it is a wasteland. Genesis 1 uses a seven-day time period. Genesis 2 does not speak of time at all. Genesis 1 uses the generic name Elohim for God. It can be singular. It can be plural. It means the deity, the supreme being, the divine one. Other nations, other ancient religions used a form of that word as well. But Genesis 2 uses a very specific word, the word Yahweh, the singular, distinct name of the God of the Jewish people. In Genesis 1, the animals are created first, along with everything else in order. In Genesis 2, the animals are created last. In Genesis 1, humanity is created last. In Genesis 2, humanity is created first. In Genesis 1, humanity is created in mass. No specifics. In Genesis 2, two specific humans are created, Adam and Eve. And then third, I said, given this information and given how the entire canon of Hebrew Scripture was shaped and given the fact that we now live with scientific and quantum understandings inaccessible by generations previously, the proposition most shocking, I said, we cannot read these two chapters literally. The people who wrote those down did not. We cannot read these as historical. The Jewish community did not. We cannot read them as scientific. That was impossible for people living in the Iron Age. These are mythical stories, not lies, not fables, not folk tales, not made-up legends. They are myths in the true sense of the word, myths which are true, though they cannot be quantified in a laboratory. They do not answer scientific questions. They speak to spiritual questions. So here is where I left you last week. And by the way, I will leave you hanging again today. Genesis is concerned with two questions. 
who and why. Science is concerned with the questions of how and when. Fundamentally, fundamentally, these seek different answers because they are asking different questions. Faith and science, which we have artificially compartmentalized one from the other, can be seen, I am proposing, as two different languages speaking to the same single reality. They can be and they must be integrated. You cannot explain away spiritual experience or scripture or religious intuition, nor can you dismiss or ignore science, the geological and biological facts of the universe. I'm saying you don't have to do those things. Let's do what our spiritual ancestors did. Let's take the scriptures and our spiritual understandings and our faith experiences and let's make them a sort of Genesis 1 and then let's take science and the discoveries even now unfolding before our very eyes, the constant wonder of this magnificent universe and let's make that a sort of Genesis 2 and rather than throwing one out and keeping the other, let them stand in tension as they are telling the same story in their own way. Now you're completely caught up. See, if I just said that last week, we could have been all, you know, having brunch by 1030, but I went on. You don't have to be a Luddite or hold to a medieval view of science or an Iron Age view of science to be a person of faith. You don't have to be an atheist, a Christopher Hitchens or a Richard Dawkins to believe in the validity and credibility of scientific discovery. There is only, it would appear at this point, one single reality, but there are multiple ways to observe it, to experience, and to speak of it. Now, as North American Christians, most of us in the Catholic, Protestant, yea, evangelical tradition, we have had a single language, a single way of understanding science versus Scripture. And it has been, I was taught, Scripture is superior Science is secondary. Scripture is literal. Science is theoretical. If there is a conflict, it is science that must be wrong. That is preposterous. May I explain? You heard selections from the Psalms today. Psalms 8, 9, and 13, known as the creation Psalms. They speak of God as creator, They speak of God's universe testifying to God's glory. They speak of God's incubating and forming power. And again, there's no real discussion as to the mechanics. It's a faith claim that God is the prime mover. God is the who behind all that is. And then there are other Psalms and passages from the Old Testament, none from the New, by the way, that if taken literally get us into trouble with the facts. Psalm 104, Psalm 96 passing references in Ecclesiastes and First Chronicles. These passages speak of the earth being, quote, unmovable, firmly established, unshakable. And it's poetry. It cannot be literally true. We know this now. For example, Genesis 1 speaks of seven days and nights passing, and it has to be metaphor. It cannot be taken literally because the sun, which marks our 24-hour period of day and night, isn't even created until the fourth day. So it just doesn't work. 
And here is a prime historical example, and I want you to bear with me today because this is sort of the bridge between everything I said last week and what I'm going to say next week, but this bridge is necessary. In 1533, 500 years ago, a quiet, ruminating, middle-aged scholar, I like to call him middle-aged because he was 60, but really, who lives to be 120? That's starting to worry me. Middle-aged scholar from Poland came to the Vatican to visit Pope Clement, and his name was Nicholas Copernicus. And this was not a social visit. He was presenting a scientific theory that he had been working on for 20 years. The earth, in fact, did move, he said, no matter what the Psalms were saying. Copernicus was overturning the scientific conclusion since Aristotle, 2,000 years of established scientific theory. He goes before, and isn't it interesting, he doesn't go to a science lab to say this, he has to go to the Pope to defend himself. And he goes to Pope Clement and he says, I think Aristotle is wrong. And I think the scriptures are poetry and metaphor. The earth does in fact move. It rotates around the sun. In fact, everything we observe is rotating around the sun. And Pope Clement loved it. Absolutely loved it. The reformers did not. They had a much more literal reading of the scripture. And here's a quote from Philip Melanchthon, an associate of Luther. He said this of Copernicus, what a fool as this earth firmly established by God could move. These are the thoughts of one whose head is empty. Now, Copernicus was overthrowing not just 2,000 years of scientific theory. Hear me this morning. This is very important. He was overthrowing the entire history of Christian interpretation of Scripture. The entire Christian interpretation and saying we have to look at it a different way. But you know what? Outside of Pope Clement and a few critics, no one really paid any attention to Copernicus. Do you know why? Because he wrote and spoke in Polish and Latin. And at the time, about 10% of Europe could read. And most of those couldn't read Latin. He wrote all his books in Latin, all of his treaties in Latin. He spoke and gave lectures in Pol. Fast forward 100 years. Everyone seemed to care. You get to the 1600s, and another scientist comes to Rome to visit the Pope. This time, it's Pope Urban. And this time, it's not a social visit either, nor is it a presentation of scientific theory. A man named Galileo has been called before the Inquisition. I have a picture of Galileo here as well. The Inquisition was the theological enforcer of the Catholic Church because he had written a book that confirmed everything Copernicus had said a hundred years earlier. They virtually ignored him. Why did they go after Galileo? Well, the literacy rate in Europe had quadrupled, quadrupled thanks to the widespread printing press. Galileo wrote books in common Italian vernacular so that the common man could read it. And he was making his scientific theories more accessible. And now the church was afraid of science instead of seeing it as telling 
the truth about the universe. Now the church saw science as a rival, a threat to their own power and to their own control. And I'm not just picking on Catholics. The Protestants felt the same way. But Galileo was a Catholic, a devout Catholic. He almost became a priest instead of a scientist. That's how devout he was. He wasn't trying to tear the church down. He wasn't trying to topple its theology. But that's how he was perceived and received. What did they do to poor Galileo? His books were banned, a practice as old as books themselves, by the way along with the books that Copernicus had written and had been collecting dust on the shelves. Then the Pope said, you can't read those either. He was placed under house arrest. He was confined to his family's farm for the rest of his life. He was declared a heretic. When he died, he was denied a proper church burial. He was dumped into an unmarked grave in Florence. The church would not even allow him to be buried in his family's cemetery. And if you think this is ancient history, it is not. One more quote from you from Pope John Paul II in 1992. Galileo suffered unjustly at the hands of the church while being upright in regard to his views, his behaviors, and in the relationship between science and religion. I give you Pope John Paul's words in 1992 because it took to 1992 for the church to lift the band that Galileo was a heretic. 350 years we condemn a man for telling the truth because we could not find it reconcilable with our established view that we had already. Now, sidebar with a slide, lighten things up here. This is at the Galileo Museum in Florence. Galileo was, ult- Galileo was ultimately vindicated. He was removed from that unmarked grave and given a proper Catholic burial in a proper Catholic cemetery, and whoever exhumed his body, we do not know for sure, removed the middle finger from his right hand, and I will leave you to interpret whatever that might mean. (laughs) Galileo was right all along. The earth moves. He was also wrong. The sun is not the center of the universe, not even close. Our sun is an insignificant star circled by otherwise meaningless planets in a universe so vast, so massive, so enormous that we cannot comprehend it. It is almost useless, in fact, to even give you the data. But here's the data. The known universe is 546 trillion miles across. That's 54 with 22 zeros. You don't have to count them. Trust me. You would have to travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second for 93 billion years to get to the edge of what is known. Now, that's more miles than most of us put on any car we have ever driven for a decade in a second. And that's some kind of supercharged rocket that travels 186,000 miles per second every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every month, every year for 93 billion years. And along the way, there would be trillions of galaxies and stars and planets and comets and asteroids and God only knows what. I was going to show you pictures today of how small the earth is in comparison to the sun and then compare the sun to the size of the largest stars, so on and so forth. But here's your homework. Search sun compared to UY Scuti, the largest known star that we can see. 
Go Google that when you get home today. Not on your phones right now, please. And then search Earth's size within universe, and it will absolutely boggle your mind. It will blow your mind, but it should not ruin your faith. It doesn't have to. The Lowell Observatory is on a beautiful mountainside in Flagstaff, Arizona. Its telescope made, makes Galileo's look like a little carpet fiber. And it's there that Clyde Tumball discovered Pluto, which may or may not be a planet still to this day. I don't know. You can go to the observatory and look through their telescopes. I did that with my family 15 years ago. You'll love this slide. Oh, when I was young. We had this whole northern Arizona experience, Sedona and Route 66 in the Grand Canyon, the Painted Desert, and a snowstorm in the Ponderosa Pines. It was the first time my, my kids had ever seen snow. A meteor crater, and we went to the observatory on a very cold, clear night to stargaze and to look at the moon. They opened up the giant telescopes for families to come see. And they have a museum there that attempts to illustrate so much of what I've been trying to say and getting you to Google today about the size and the breadth and the magnificence of the universe, and I loved it. It was nerd heaven. I mean, do you ever go somewhere with your family, and you're like, if you're, if you're a nerd, all, nerds unite right here. If you're a nerd, you love to go to places like that. Amen? If you're not a nerd, you despise it. Well, my kids despised it as soon as the telescope watching was over, and uh, Cindy was devastated by that museum. I mean, she was uh, overwhelmed. The whole of it all, the scope of space, the near infinity of the size of the universe, the incomprehensible distance and age of the universe, it, it actually rattled her. And so I'm nerding it up, you know, with all the displays, and I don't know where my kids are. Who, I mean, who really cares? And, and, and I had lost her, and I found her sitting uh, in the snack bar, uh, with all her fuses blown. And she had been forced to think about the world we all live in. And to her credit, and in her defense, most of us don't really think about the things I've talked about today. When you're raising kids and you're swamped by work and you're trying to pick up the dry cleaning before they close, light your calculations and the juxtaposition of science and religion are not foremost in your mind. And honest to God, this one little pale blue dot that we live on has so much trouble, why extend it to take in the whole universe, right? But here we were having this existential moment in a snack bar in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I don't remember the entire conversation that unfolded then and in the days that followed, but I remember a couple of conclusions that we came to together. Number one, the cosmos has been this big and this incredible the whole time. We just didn't know it. And when I say the whole time, I mean the whole time. Like all of human history, a universe that is at least 13 billion years old, we should be rattled. Our knees should shake. Our hands should tremble on occasion at the sheer wonder of it all. It's only been in the last century 
with advancing technology and advancing physics that we've come to understand all of this. We are, we are dealing with things that none of our ancestors could have even imagined, and we can barely imagine it. Truly, in scientific terms, this is all new. And for a species like us, that we can be shocked to our knees simply by looking at a sunset over the Gulf of Mexico, to try to take in all that is, it's just too much for us. But this universe has been this big and this magnificent all along. We've only peered into an infinitely small amount of it. And the second conclusion, if the universe is this big and this incredible, what does that say about the God that created it? That God doesn't exist? You could come to that conclusion And we could have spirited, unceasing debate about that, believers, skeptics, agnostics, atheists. But for those of us who believe in God, we believe in God as creator, this God is more spectacular than you ever dreamed possible. In ancient times when the Bible was written, the world was flat. Just this unmovable pancake with God above and us down below. By the Middle Ages, the world was round, much larger than previously known and no longer the center of the universe. And now, say, peeping through the Hubble Space Telescope or visiting Lowell Observatory, our fundamental understanding of the universe is radically changed, and so is our understanding of God. I don't need a literal seven-day creation. I don't need the earth to be the center of the universe. I don't need the sun to be the center of the universe. I don't need the sky to be just up there with the angels hiding behind the clouds in our little limited atmosphere. I don't need the little God of ancient times or as constructed by medieval theology. But the God who made all of this, this indescribable, always unfolding, always creating, always expanding, impossible to capture with word or thought God, this God is all grown up. And this is the God that I'm inviting you to think about. It breaks the bounds of all verbal communication, anything that we can say. And it's been this God all along. A God that has infused love and life into the very fiber the very DNA of the universe. Let us not make the mistake our religious ancestors did. Let's not confine God or our understanding of God to a few paragraphs on paper. Let this God run wild with the cosmos that this God has created. Let this God provide fresh insight and meaning to life. Let us say with the psalmist, Something that is more true today in the 21st century than it was 3,000 years when it was first considered. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And that is more true now than ever.